trying to make it right These people won't let me go I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Let me grow, let me go Let me grow, let me go They should know, they should know They should know, they should know I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Each week, I'll start with my guest's bio and intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Charles R. Chancy of the Third. <laughs> Chuck uses he him pronouns, is a 30-year-old male who enjoys cooking, the tea with Brie, long walks on the beach, and hour-long discussions of political allegories with our blushing and talented host, Brie Jenkins. I am so excited that you and I are finally able to do this. I am thrilled. And see, uh, like, looking at you via Zoom is just such, it's like throwing me off when I'm so excited. Yeah, you know... Big fan of the podcast you've put up. <laughs> I mean, no, I swear to God, I'm telling everybody I can about these about these things. I mean, I, I have to be honest. The, the majority of the time, the topics you cover, quite frankly, aren't issues that I've necessarily um, have faced. Mm-hmm. But knowledge is power, so it's nice that there's a medium and a platform for people to express uh, their viewpoints and opinions on those subject matters. So. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Chuck and I have been friends for almost 13 years now. I met Chuck my freshman year of college, and we've been attached at the hip ever since. And uh, yeah. <laughs> my, my hip? Whichever hip. Yeah. Mine, yours, each other's. Sure. I said we've been attached at the hip. Is that? <laughs> I just wanted to make sure there wasn't a mouse in your pocket. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. So, so, so this is this is like a day to day interaction right here. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever been in a room for longer than like five or six minutes without one of us just basically busting a rib, laughing so hard. I mean, yeah. this this is normal. So you know, if anybody doesn't hear anything for about thirty seconds, it's because one of us is laughing and the other one doesn't know. What Say. Yeah, that, I'll try to edit it down so y'all don't hear air, but it'll probably just be me laughing off of the mic. Um, but yeah, we've been friends since 2008. We met my freshman year of college. Chuck was a sophomore. We're a year apart. Um, I don't remember how we like officially first met, but I do remember we got really close yes. because I did. I was baseball managing my freshman yes, year. Yes, I was just about to say that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, the most oh. odd couple, but here we are. Yeah. We've, been, <laughs> we've survived. I, mean, I used stomach those 15 uh, passenger van trips like a champ. Oh I my mean, fucking God, that goddamn. You, I mean, you were, you were in a van with, I mean, we fit what, like eight or nine players in each van plus equipment. 
So many. And, and freezing. Like, it's still freezing during baseball yeah. season. Well, the be- yeah, the beginning part of it, for sure. And uh, you you were there faithfully every time we had to, to hop in those those vans to go hit a road game you were you were right there with us every practice i was there with you guys and brian i was like listen i paid my dues freshman year i've set the tone for friendship forever yeah and and you know what i think you probably picked the most fun of the years there that uh that i played at least um we had a lot of fun my sophomore year so definitely came along for the ride good group of guys we had there Uh, yeah so you picked the topic for this week. What is it? So the topic I wanted to discuss this week is addiction and living with that in your family or uh, knowing somebody who struggles with those sorts of issues. Because as I mentioned to you um, last week, today is actually the three-year anniversary of my sister passing away from an overdose. So it's a subject that I'm uh, I have particularly relevant experience with, and um, having gone through it, I can definitely say I hope nobody else has to go through it themselves. But uh, unfortunately, I know that's most likely not going to be the reality. Um, so anything I can do to sort of open up and talk about my experiences that could be helpful, um, I think is a worthwhile conversation to have. Yeah. And then I was texting you the other day because... I think you you remember my friend Nick that you had met through like Devin and Mike. He grew up being really yes. close with Mike. He yep. passed away six years ago. It'll be six years on February on February on April twentieth. Um, so I thought like that you bringing up this topic. And he died of an accidental overdose too. So like I thought this was like very fitting that we talk about it now with like those two big dates coming up for both of us. So. Yeah, and I never met your sister. So, like, I had only known about her through, like, what you were telling me, and then she had your nephew. Um, But, like, I didn't even know she was an addict until maybe, like, after we graduated college. Like, it wasn't even, like, something we talked about until, like, we were, like, well out of school and, like, things, like, sort of, like, I remember, like, she had, like, a really bad, like, year one year, and, like, we talked about, like, a lot about that. But then, like, other than that, I hadn't known about it. Yeah, it's uh, quite honestly, it was something I was very hesitant to open up about uh, for a very long time because, you know, it's, it's one of those things when you're growing up as, as a kid, you know, you don't want to think of um, your family as having to deal with problems necessarily that other families don't have to deal with. You know, yeah. you think that, you know, you grow up just the way everybody else does and that just sort of wasn't necessarily the reality of the situation in, in my household. So um, there's a little of protectiveness and just a little bit of just overall discomfort kind of opening up about it Um, but as time went on and you know quite frankly I learned just how common dealing with these sorts of issues are amongst family members um, it definitely makes me incredibly grateful that I'm not struggling with the same issues Um, but then it also gives you a little bit a little bit of hope because you know somebody else has kind of been down this path before yeah and she was your older sister right Yes, she was my only sister. Yeah, it was just me and her. Do you know when she started using? So it's quite a a lengthy process from from start to finish. It's Mm -hmm. sort of of the first signs that maybe something wasn't quite right really happened when I was um, like 12 or 13. Um, She had an altercation with um, my, my father, not physical, verbal. And um, 
you know, in the aftermath of that, she sort of started hanging out with a different crowd and began experimenting a little bit. And then um, it sort of progressed and progressed and, and progressed until it sort of um, reached its, its its final stage for, for a better word. So I'm not quite sure when um, she actually started using heroin, but I know um, her struggle to clean up from heroin addiction was an eight to nine year process of uh, to rehab and clinics and trying to to get it all all sorted out. Yeah. And I think about like, I don't think a lot of people understand, like with me having lived in Texas now for four years, like outside of Connecticut, everyone thinks like it's very like wealthy and rich and like everything is just like glitters and rainbows and sunshine like in a very progressive place. Um, so like with me, I... I talk about Nick often just because like a lot of stuff in the news uh, around like the drug uh, epidemic in the country. And then like also like thinking about like if Nick was still alive, he probably would have moved here with me by now. Um, but like thinking back to mine and his friendship, like I had known Nick like almost all of high school. And then like we got really close after I graduated college, um, but he had been struggling for a while. And I didn't know until maybe like I was told when I was like 20, two because he was 24 when I, I was 24 when he passed away um so I didn't know till like the last like two years of his life that he had been an addict and like you're saying like it's not a thing that like a lot of people talk about like I had known his brother in passing and my aunt and uncle actually lived on his street um so like there was like always like whispers and stuff about his family but like no one ever like ever like came out and said it like what was up with Nick for lack of better terms right. um so like for sure, like seeing the way that like addiction can destroy people and a month or two before Nick died, he had been clean for a while and we hadn't hung out for like maybe a couple months. And so I picked him up one night and he was like, hey, just so you know, I relapsed last month and I overdosed and I almost died. And we had a whole conversation about like, I said to him, like, I, if, if you died, I do not know what I would do. And two months later, he ended up passing away. And I just, like, that was so, that was a really big, like, I couldn't, I can't even imagine what his family went through. Like, his parents were very religious and, like, they were very stoic, him and um, his parents and his brother. But, like, me just being friends with him for so long, like, I did not handle that well. And I've talked about it on, like, previous things. But, like, I, I think you handled your sister's passing it, it made me see you in a new light. Like I had always seen you as very like stoic and get things done. But like the last couple of years are just seeing you change a lot and how much you've like taken on a lot of stuff with your parents has just been beautiful and like very admirable and an honor to watch. Like having known you from when you were 19 till now of just like yeah. watching how much losing your sister transformed you. But I also think of like how much it like pushed your like your family closer together um, cause like even like knowing you for so long, like I had only like seen your parents in passing and like, didn't really like get to like know too much about them. Like you were very guarded yeah. with your whole family period. Um, yeah. and then like after your sister passing, like I met your parents a couple years later and they were lovely people, but like, just like that, knowing someone for so long and just like, even still like learning about them so much later into your friendship, um, and watching how much like that, that really like made you open up to people more. Right. Oh, and just one thing, because I know I had mentioned I wanted to, to do this. Um, so just, you know, for, for everybody who is 
listening, I, I do work for a publicly traded company. So I just want to say anything that I have said or do say is just my opinion. This is just something for fun with a very good friend of mine. And, and not that anybody would think that I do speak on behalf of my company, but just, just clarifying that this is just a personal opinion since I know it's going to make it out to the World Wide Web. And it very professional. Yeah, just want to make sure that everybody knows this is just something I'm doing for fun. Bree is a very good friend of mine. Even if you know she doesn't ever come visit when she comes to Connecticut. Okay, we're not going to get into that right now. That's all right. We could do a whole another podcast. I'm coming home for Christmas this year. Yes. Um, and also like with Corona, I can't really travel right now. But I will visit when their ban is lifted and I can travel again. That's that's fine. Yeah, so what, one of the things that, um, that, that I noticed, and it wasn't something I realized as I was kind of going through the process, was that there is, when you kind of grow up around that stuff, there tends to be sort of like this element of, of shame, like you in some way, shape, or form think that what's going on around you is, you know, because of something you did or a problem, kind of, you know, something about you as a person. And as I sort of... Well, as I was sort of able to detach from that feeling and sort of looked at it, look at it objectively and say, Hey, you know what? That's, you know, there are a whole set of issues. It's not necessarily anything to do with me as a person. Um, it, it made it a lot easier to open up and get some of the, some of the thoughts and feelings that I'm kind of holding in kind of out into the open, whether it was talking to somebody like you or maybe writing it down or, or whatever it is, that was definitely something that got much easier over time. Yeah. I also think of just like, I think of how men are like masculine of people, masculine centered people like aren't given space to like mourn things. So like, I even think about that, like when your sister passed away, it was like a week after you came to visit me, like you had just left. Visiting yeah. Me. It was about two weeks later. Yeah. Um, and I was out and I, I remember you calling me and I was like, okay like because it was just like a random thing for you to call me with and it was like the middle of the day I was like okay what happened and so we talked about it but I just think of like I remember that phone call so vividly because you were just so calm like it was just all like my sister passed away I have to go talk to my parents we're doing this just want you to know like I think of like how people handle loss and particularly like I was saying like men and masculine centered people like just very not rigidly but just very matter-of-factly like I feel like even still like for folks to talk about like feelings and loss and all that sort of stuff is still like sort of taboo but I feel like we're kind of moving out of that but I I thought about that too when you brought up this conversation of just like again how much it changed you and I don't know if you've noticed but I mean we've we've talked about this like you've changed a lot in the time that I've known you and I think it's been yeah particularly these last three years yeah and, and I think one of the things particularly about the the phone call you mentioned that was that was sort of unique about the situation is I remember when it happened obviously you know I cried a lot and I was and I was really sad when I right. um but in, in a weird way I sort of looked at the situation as you know everybody who tried to help my sister after she you know overdosed and they were trying to revive her like like my parents the paramedics the nurses the doctors of the hospital they all did what they were supposed to do mm -hmm. they, they all did everything they could and it just 
sort of was just a bit too late. Um, and while that's, you know, not the easiest thing in the world necessarily to accept, um, knowing that everybody tried to, to help and do their best um, definitely made it a little bit easier to deal with, at least in the immediate aftermath. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember too, like everybody was so supportive, like my coworkers, my friends, obviously my parents were as supportive as they could be because mm. they were going through a loss as well. You know, my nephew's father, his side of the family, everybody was just absolutely wonderful. Um, and that also made it so much easier to deal with because I did not expect um, the, the breadth of the outpouring of support that that I got. So that was awesome. So, you know, thank you to everybody who did that. You're the best. It's interesting that you say that like so many people are supportive when I feel like if we're going to make this into a bigger conversation, how like talking about addiction and how it affects so many people in this country is still seen as really like taboo and not a lot of people know how to address it or have those conversations or how to build community around it. And so I guess like, how has that changed or how has that like affected your life of like having gone through this well one of the things i did in sort of the immediate aftermath was because i'll say when when my sister was alive and going through her struggles um i don't necessarily think i did the greatest job of trying to understand exactly what happened what was happening like i knew logically what was happening what i was seeing Mm -hmm. and what i was being Um, But I didn't understand sort of like the fundamentals of what is like the underlying issue here, you know, so so that leads you to research, you know, in my case, pretty much anything I could find about addiction and, you know, why in a family like mine, why my sister ended up down that path and I didn't, you know, Mm. things that affect. And And I think one of the things I learned most throughout that process is just how little understanding there largely is about what's what's happening. Like I know plenty of people who um, think that um, addiction is just a just a choice, even when science has sort of proven there's a psychological part to it. Yeah. Um, so so I think that is something that has definitely um, made it a little bit harder to open up the discussion for a lot of people. Yeah. And like, can you go into that more of like, you made a, you just made a comment about like how in your family, like your, your sister and not you, like, what do what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah. So we have the same mother and same father. Um, we grew up in the same household. Uh, we grew up in the same town. We went to the same school systems. Everything essentially about us was equal in terms of our upbringing, except I was a boy. She was a girl. She was three years older than me right? Everything else was, everything else was equal. Um, and so one of the things I struggled with was, well, we grew up in the same house. We came from the same, um, pool of genetics. Uh, we grew up with the same parents. We grew up with the same support system, same town, the same schools. Why did she end up, um, struggling with addiction? Whereas I did not end up struggling with addiction. And, so that bothered me for quite some time. And then I found this, this study that sort of kind of helped put things in perspective. And it was a, a study about when they first introduced nicotine patches to the market to help curb smoke rates after um, 
all of that literature came out just kind of proving how bad smoking cigarettes were for you. And so what they found was, is that after two years of the introduction of the patch, 17% of users who used the patch and were committed to quitting smoking were able to quit. Now that's a really big number, but the bigger number is the 83% that weren't able to quit by using these patches. And that, and that was sort of the first time I started thinking about addiction as being something in your brain as well as, um, you know, something that is willpower and discipline based. Like, you know, that was the first time I thought of it as a kind of a combination of the two. Sorry, that's like an interest. I never would have thought of it that way of like, I, and like you're saying, like a lot of people still have this feeling of like, when you choose, you're choosing to be an addict, like having like watched, well know about Nick's addiction and like how it really affects people. And then like also like Connecticut has a really huge drug problem, which I don't think people understand or think about. Yeah. Like a lot of people are dealing with addiction. I used to work for a nonprofit that did um, housing for people who had been homeless. And so a lot yeah. of my, uh, the people I was working with, like my clients, a lot of them were on methadone, which is like a deterrent. So you won't use drugs. Um, and yeah, like my, makes you a, physically sick. Go ahead. Yeah. My sister went to a, to a methadone clinic for five or six years uh, yeah. when she was going to get clean. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's this, drug that helps you like stay off of drugs and then um so watching that of like and then also like this idea around like with people who are experiencing homelessness is what's called like co-occurring diagnosis and it's usually either you are using a drug and have a mental illness or there's like a bunch of different factors that feed into why you're homeless and so like just seeing that like addiction can be a cause of it of like no one is choosing to do this to themselves. It's just like, it's essentially like after a while, it's just happening to you. Like your body needs it to survive. Like that's why people go to the hospital and like when they're trying to get clean or when you're withdrawal, like there's a whole thing of like your whole body changes as you're using. And so I, right. I've always thought of it that way of like, I think if people just knew like how much addiction uproots your your whole life of like, there's so many different things that go into being an addict and it's not just getting the drugs. It's like figuring like how you're going to pay for it. What does being an addict mean? Like with a lot of uh, housing stuff with nonprofit organizations, they talk about a housing first model, which is like, if you give someone who's experiencing homelessness housing first, like, cause in the old days you would have to like, either if you were using drugs, you would have to stop using drugs in order to qualify for housing. It just shows like, it was this thing in place of like making it that much more difficult for people who needed help in order to get housing. Like it was an extra step. And so they've showed that like, if you give someone housing, everything else is able to fall in line. Like they can start going to the doctor regularly. They can stop using drugs. They can do all these different things, but it's this, again, it's that like negative connotation of looking like this narrative, like being an addict is a choice. And like, if you really wanted to stop, you could just do it. And it's, there's so much more that goes into wanting to get clean. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting too, is that if you take kind of um, a high level look at, you know, like the opioid crisis that is happening, if you take a high level look at that, what you'll see is that there are sort of pockets and epicenters that have developed around the country where the, the rates of opioid abuse are highest right Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things that's also true about those epi centers is that that's also where um, non-opioid-based suicide rates are highest. That's where um, prescriptions for antidepressant drugs are highest. Um, that's where reported mental illnesses and disorders are highest. So there's there's certainly so many different elements and so many different facets of this this narrative that um, it is kind of overwhelming to explore because there's just so much that goes into it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what it's called. Of like, there are these places you can go to like use drugs safely for people who oh. are battling addiction. I feel like it's like a safe yeah. injection place. Uh. So. So the, you remember the other day when I had mentioned that I supported um, there being some element of, what's the right way to say this? Remember the other day when, when I texted you about how I thought America kind of handled or is handling the addiction situation kind of incorrectly and mm -hmm. a different approach to, to the problem? Yeah, so the reason why I support that approach is uh, I actually learned this from a Joe Rogan podcast. Actually, podcasts come from full circle, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I actually learned this from a Joe Rogan podcast. So in the by the time the year 2000 hit, Switzerland was in uh, a heroin epidemic, like to, to the point where certain sections of the country, the police officers were being told not to patrol because there were so many addicts in those areas that the law enforcement would always be outnumbered and if something happened it would be a dangerous situation for them so this um this woman uh ruth dreyfus came along and said you know i think we're doing this all wrong and so the way that they punished um drug users back then in switzerland is very much the same way that we handle it in america arrested criminal charges criminal record, stigma, all that kind of stuff. So what she said was, instead of trying to fight these guys, let's start supporting them. So what she did was, is she had these clinics set up around the country where you would go in, the drugs would be pharmaceutically made there, so that way you knew they were clean and pure. Wow. Give you um, a clean needle to inject with, they would have, they would require you to use it on site. That way the medical staff can monitor you and make sure that nothing happens. Um, and you were able to go back um, as many days in a row as you wanted to. You weren't pressured to quit. Um, the only thing you had to agree to um, in using this program was that you would um, work with their therapists. Um, they would assist you with finding housing. They would assist you with setting up with a job. Um, because this woman's philosophy was, if you want to cure addiction, then help make their lives better. Mm. Sorry, that just really made that. Uh, I love that. I think it's also this thing, like a friend of mine, I just did new leaders council with last year. Uh, her name was oh, Emily. Do you, do you want to hear the results? Oh, I didn't know there were results. There were. So after okay, two, go ahead. So, so <laughs> after, about, uh, after basically about two decades, right, about a decade and a half, they took uh, a look back and there were zero overdoses from anybody that was on the program. Mm -hmm. In the course of this time period, overall overdose 
deaths decreased by 64%. And new HIV infections decreased from, on average, 3,000 new cases a year to less than 500 new cases a year. So, I mean, it was, it was tremendously... Uh, a lot of trickle effects. ...effective for, for a lot of people. Huh. Now... They have the system, it's called the four pillars, um, and it's basically four principles that outline their approach to drug abuse and addiction. And they are? Oh. <laughs> uh, so they're harm reduction, treatment, prevention, and then repression, uh, with repression being the, the use of law enforcement. That's what I was thinking, harm reduction. That was the philosophy we used in nonprofit. Like, we don't yeah. pressure you to quit. It's just like, what can we do to lower your use or to make your use more safe? Because again, like you're saying, it has all these trickle effects of like just making it like these stats you just gave, like it lowers everything and like has ripple effects to the whole community. Like you're saying, like HIV, uh, new cases are from 3,000 to less than 500. Like you can see in the numbers how quickly it affects everything. Yeah, and I, and I think too is that you know, anytime you mention, you know, a program like this, right, somebody's always going to throw around the legalization word, right? And so a lot of times when you say legalization as it relates to something that's controversial or hot button, people sort of think of anarchy and chaos. Mm -hmm. But if you really think about it, the situation that they were in and sort of the situation that a lot of places in America are in is actually that, right? You have people on the street getting who knows what from somebody they don't know, who got it from somebody they don't know, who made it in some place that you have no idea what's mixed in, right? I mean, that's, a, that's effectively absolute, absolute chaos. I mean, you have this, this, uh, this activity kind of being very pervasive in society, and that just creates, you know, sort of all of those negative situations yeah. that you kind of want to avoid. Like you're saying, like, with the clinics you're talking about, like, they were able to make essentially, like, quote-unquote, pure examples of it. It's like they knew everything that was in there, making sure they could monitor, like, everyone yeah. who was in those spaces. Because, like, if you're getting off the street, like, you don't know what the person's mixing it with and, like, no, what's exactly. in and how you're going to, like, what it could mean to you. Like, the year that Nick died, there was, like, a really bad batch of drugs going around that year, which is why, like, a lot of people think that's why he overdosed. Like, it was just he had been clean and then you use a batch and the batch is different and you like it's been told like a lot of addicts after they stop using and then go back like they inadvertently like will try to use the same amount they used to use and like their body yeah. has gotten weaned off of it and so it changes but like you're saying like the more they were able to monitor it the more beneficial it, it turned out to be yeah and, I, and i'm i'm pretty convinced that that's the same um sort of story with what happened with my sister because she um so she actually stopped going to the clinic and using completely around Christmas time of 2016. Um, and, and then she started using again the uh, first or second week of February. And then it was about six or seven weeks later when she um, overdosed. And I talked to a couple of my friends who were uh, in law enforcement. And they were saying that, that yeah, it was most likely just a bad batch or her not knowing her her tolerance anymore yeah we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back 
And we're back. Um, I do want to get into this conversation about addiction and race and how addiction in communities of color is treated and looked at a lot differently than if you are white. And I think one of the biggest things that's really been on my mind lately is not that weed is an addictive drug, but like the war on drugs period and how marijuana was a really big one and how like over the last like five years, there's been a conversation around marijuana use and the drug crisis period and how like a lot of people are now that marijuana is getting legalized and a lot of states are asking for people who went to jail for selling marijuana to get out of jail now that it's becoming legal essentially. Um, but I also th think about it of a, maybe like last year, Miley Cyrus's parents posted a photo of like them with like a vault of like marijuana um, and the privilege that a lot of people of color brought to the table, well, conversation they bought about that privilege of like, as white wealthy people, you were able to kind of show off what you have. But like, if it was a black person who did that, it would be, it would have been received a lot differently. Um, so yeah, I guess like to start, like, how do you think that like your sister being a white woman with addiction was treated? Um, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of a, difficult question for me to answer mm -hmm. um, it, it, the reason why I say that is because during sort of sort of kind of like the the crest of everything that was happening with her was the the period when I was finishing up school and then transitioning into um, my career and so during that time period I wasn't home a lot mm -hmm. Um, e and quite frankly, for the majority of that time period from when it kind of reached it, that peak to when she passed away, I, I, I wasn't around a ton because I moved out less than a year after I graduated. In the last three years that I was at school, I also lived there. So it was difficult. And during the summer, obviously, I was playing baseball and working. So um, in addition to me not being around, they, she also was sort of intermittently not living with. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, to be honest, I, I don't really know how hmm. she would be perceived if I had asked somebody else in real time. Do you think you were so busy and like avoiding going home or just you were just involved in your own life or like? Um, probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. uh, there was definitely an aspect of like I want to accomplish these things therefore I know I have to be here 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 and here in order right. to do those things but then there was also sort of uh you know like I like going to work because a, a part of it is I get to focus on something other than all that kind of stuff or I like going to school because I get to be around my buddies and a little bit removed from from that situation so it was probably a combination of both okay. yeah I I have never, I, well, I didn't grow up with someone who was an addict. Um, yeah. So like, it was I, tough too for me, sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're fine. Go ahead. And, and it was tough too, especially for me because um, there were just as many addicts in my house as there were not uh, because, you know, my, my father also struggles with, with alcoholism, which is one of the reasons why I'm so conservative when it comes to, you know, even just having a, a beer or two when you're out watching a game, 
right? So um, that was impactful for a large stretch of, of my life as well. I never knew that your dad was an alcoholic. I didn't tell you that? No, I just remember you were very, you have, for as long as I've known you, you have always been like very much like free, especially not for other people, but for you, like you've always been like no more than two. I don't think you even drank during college. No, I didn't. Not at all. Like, I don't think you drank until like way after we graduated. Yeah, no, no, no. I um, I did not know that about your dad. Yeah, yeah. That, so that was a main driver as to why I was so conservative and still continue to be yeah. conservative today. Um, huh. But yeah, no, I can't believe I never told you that. I figured that would have, I figured I would have told you that before I told you about my sister. No, I, I mean, I guess like, I never, I never, you never mentioned it, but I guess it's kind of what the feeling was. Like, I, I assumed like someone in your family had had struggles with alcohol, but you had never like blinged me like, yeah, it is my dad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was a bit more than, than just my, my dad too. Not, not my mom. I, I, I don't, I've never seen her too much. Um, an alcohol drink in her life, actually, in my life, actually. Hmm. And now that I think about it, um, yeah, so very, um, very much polar opposites in that respect between yeah. my father. I guess like my only experience would be like having worked with people who had been dealing with addiction. Yeah. And just like seeing how much like, again, how that impacted their lives of just being very much like, and like with me, like I had worked with both people of color and white people who were addicts and just seeing how differently they were treated when they came into my office. Like, not by me, but by like different people in different positions of like, I had an older white man who was like very like, quite essentially like a privileged white man, like just very, he is who he is. This is what he's going to do. This is how he gets his everything in his life. And he also was an addict and like just seeing how people treated him versus if they saw a person of color, particularly a woman of color, um, come in who had an addiction and how vastly differently they were treated. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up of just like, I think, again, that's another thing with the, with the drug crisis here in this country of just like how differently it affects white people versus how it affects communities of color. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that is also um, interesting because I mean, both of those subject matters are ones that usually inspire pretty deep conversation so mm -hmm. yeah, i just almost feel like there's an, an extra level that you kind of have to get through um, if you're going to sort of combine those two topics right like there's a, a different level of intimacy that has to be had in those types of conversations to effectively get to you know an understanding as to you know where everybody stands absolutely could you touch on like how you found out about whatever you want to share, like how you found out she passed away, how you, I don't know. I just, any, anything, anything you want to share that I haven't asked about you already. Yeah. So I actually found out it was, um, it was a Saturday morning. I had gone out with some friends the night before and I got home and for some reason that night I didn't put my phone on do not disturb. Um, usually I put my phone on do not disturb and then I have like my handful to 10 people who um, like I have saved to my favorite list that would push through automatically. Um, 
you know, it, like religiously, I did everything. And for whatever reason, this night, I didn't. And and so I got a call at about 8.30, 8.45 the next morning from my godmother's daughter. And so she works at a dentist's office, so she has Saturday hours sometimes. And in order to get to her office, she has to drive by my parents' house. So my phone wakes me up. I answer, like, she's like, oh, I'm sorry to wake you, but I thought you should know that I just drove by your parents' house and there's an ambulance out front. And so right away, my first thought was, oh, this is related to my dad, because in the fall of 2016, my dad had had like two or three heart attacks. Um, and so I, I assumed that if an ambulance was there, that it was for him. And so I called my sister's cell phone trying to figure out what was happening. And my mom picked up hysterical. And then she handed the phone to my dad. And my dad was like, hey, something happened with your sister. They're taking her to the hospital. Um, come come meet us there if, if you want. And so I'm like, all right, so I'm on my way. So by the time we got through the phone conversations and everything, it's now like 9 o'clock. And so I'm hopping into my car, and I'm just about to get off. Oh, and then I remember right after I got off the phone with my parents, I called Riley. Um, now, her and I had just, like, broken up, like, six days before, um, but she answered right away, which, by the way, I don't know if she listens to your podcast, but tip my cap to her because she was incredibly supportive as well in, in the aftermath, even when she didn't need to be. So, kudos and thank you. Um, so, I call her, and she's like, okay, like, what happened and she's like okay go to the hospital and like call me when you figure something out so I was driving to the hospital and my dad called me as I was getting off exit 58 on the Merritt Parkway and so that's the exit I would take to get to the hospital which was like 10 minutes away from my parents house mm-hmm. so I called me and I pick up and he's like where are you and I'm like oh I'm getting off the highway exit should be there in about 10 minutes blah 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 blah, blah. and so I ask him how everything's going and he goes, oh, I'm in the lobby of the emergency room when you get here. And so I ask him again how everything's going because I didn't answer the question. And he goes, I'll be in the emergency room lobby when you get here. So I knew right then that there was mm. no, um, good news waiting for me when I got there. And so I walk in and my dad has his look on his face. So I'm like, okay. So like either she's gone or like it's really close and anything can happen. And then I start, I turn the corner and all of the nurses, it, it was it was weird. They were like, it was like out of a TV show. Like the nurses were like standing next to the wall. And like I was walking through an open hallway. And I could just tell by the looks on their face that like they knew that I was turning the corner and that like I was about to find out that my sister had passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I found out. Also, I don't think I've ever told but weird thing happened to me the night before. So... I remember I had this very vivid and unique dream. Have you ever seen the basketball diaries with Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Wahlberg? Leonardo DiCaprio coincidentally plays the part of Jim Carroll, who was chronicling his life in his, in his diaries. 
And so Jim Carroll becomes a, a heroin addict and recovers later on in life. So there's this one scene where Leonardo DiCaprio's character um, is going to visit his friend that he had just lost to childhood cancer. And there's this scene where he's walking in a, a dark church and there's candles lit on the side of the aisle. And then there's an altar where his casket is and a picture of him and, and all of that. And I very vividly remember this scene, but I couldn't make out who was in the casket in the picture. And this was literally the night before the next thing I remember is being awoken by my godmother's daughter saying there was an issue at my parents' house. It, it was so surreal. And I very rarely remember like dreams that I have, um, but I'll never forget this one. It was completely surreal. Like I just, it's one of those things that you just can't make up. Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to like think about like what we remember in times of grieving or like the signs we get from like the other side or whatever you believe in of just like trying to like prepare us for that. So that's, I'm just also like a little speechless about it. Cause I mean, we can go into a whole different conversation about the dreams I have and how vivid they are, but that's a different podcast episode. Um, yeah. Thank you. This has been so great we've been wanting to do this for so long i know and i'm it's so, so nice. excited and i think the nicest part about this is that it, it's it's very nice for me to just sort of be able to be free and sort of up and share my experiences with this because i mean it's not something that's very easy to deal with and like anybody who is dealing with this just understand this has absolutely nothing to do with you you know, this is not something that you should internalize or allow you to think any less of, of yourself over because um, it is something that is very common that a lot of people have to deal with, unfortunately. Hopefully that isn't the case this time next year and this time five years and this time 10 years and this time 100 years from now. Um, but until then, just just know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm telling you, man, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Okay. I do have one more question. It's the question I end every episode with. And if you are as big of a fan as you claim you are, you will know <laughs> that the question I ask is, what is the best advice you're ever given? Or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? So what I will say this, advice I would give my younger self, shout out to my, one of my very best friends, Mr. Carlos Diaz, for this little uh, nugget of information. And it's, it's so common sense in retrospect, I think, but emotions don't equal behaviors, right? There are so many times where, and as I've gotten older, one of the things that I've learned is one of the most valuable skills that you can have in life is the ability to detach from your emotions in real time. You know, like something happens that makes you feel a negative emotion and rather than reacting to it, you take time to kind of step back, give yourself what you need to sort of process the, the feeling and the emotion and everything that goes along with it. So emotions don't equal behavior. It is okay to take that step back. And I'll say this, you know, growing up, I mean, sometimes 
you give really good advice, but sometimes you aren't necessarily the best at taking it. Um, so given the, the chance to tell my younger self something, I would tell them that. That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website, theteawithbriepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And a special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music. And then I will talk to y'all next week. At Chucky TP on Instagram. I'm going to put your... <laughs> I'm going to tag all your stuff in the credits. Bye, y'all.